Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Hoover Harris, editor of DegreeOrNotDegree.com, and with me today is Dr. Larry Cuban, who is Professor Emeritus of Education at Stanford University and a well-known expert on education. He's here to discuss his recent very interesting book, The Flight of a Butterfly or the Path of a Bullet, Using Technology to Transform Teaching and Learning. Larry, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Hoover. A lot of people who follow this channel of education on the New Books Network will be familiar with you and your work. But for those who aren't familiar, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and the nature of your work over the years? Sure. Uh, I began teaching history in high school in Pittsburgh area, then Cleveland and Washington. I've been a high school teacher for 14 years. And then I uh, was an administrator. I uh, got my doctorate at Stanford and became a superintendent for seven years in Arlington, Virginia. And then after that, I uh, went back to Stanford and uh, became a, a full professor and did research and teaching for 20 years. I retired in 2001 and have been actively doing research, bicycling, and a whole bunch of activities that I wanted to do. So I've been retired for 17 years and have done research and uh, written uh, in all that time. I'm married, I'm now widowed, and I have two grown daughters and one grandchild. Well, before we get into your new book specifically, as you look back over your distinguished and, and lengthy career, I wondered if there are any particular recurring themes or observations or findings from all of your study in education with respect to reform and or technology or anything else? Do you see any general takeaways from your career? Yes. One would be the incredible complexity of schooling, first in the Mm -hmm. classroom, and then the nature of a school, the complexity of that, and then a district. And because we operate in a decentralized system, Uh, we have the state and then the federal government, but the federal government is a minor character. All of that, a decentralized system, and then the nature of teaching uh, and its complexity within a classroom, that's one major theme uh, that has occurred to me. A second is that people who uh, seek to reform the, uh, the classroom and the school and the district Uh, generally have a technical perspective and underestimate the complexity of what they are dealing with. Uh, That's the second theme. And the third is the the central role of a teacher and teaching in, uh, in schooling. Those three themes have been in my career and have emerged out of my experience as a teacher and as a superintendent and as a researcher. And those themes clearly carry through, I think, to your latest book. And I heard you say you've been retired for many years, but I gather not really because you worked hard on this book doing a lot of research. What prompted you to write this latest book? Well, I've been interested in the application of technology to schools because the uses of technology has been part of the reforms that have uh, been sought to improve schooling over the last century and a half. So technology is a is a uh, a subgenre of reform. So uh, I began looking at technology in the early 80s 
first at the role of educational film with Thomas Edison uh, <laughs> becoming a, an entrepreneur in educational films at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, and then the segue to educational radio and then educational television in the 1950s, and then the computer. Uh, I wrote a book called Teachers and Machines that came out in the mid-80s, which looked at all of those efforts to use technology to improve teaching and uh, make schools better. So that theme, which is part of uh, larger efforts to reform schools, has been a constant with me. The second major book that I wrote uh, about reform uh, using technology was called Oversold and Underused, Computers in the Classroom, and that came out in 2001. So uh, this, uh, this theme has been constant in my research and writing because it's part of the major efforts by uh, philanthropists, uh, wannabe reformers, and a whole bunch of policymakers who have seen education as a way of uh, improving education as a way of reforming society. You conducted a lot of research for this book and went to a lot of classrooms. Tell us about the research you did and how you went about that. And all of the technology uh, uh, work that I had done, research that I had done, I, I looked at uh, uh, teachers uh, continually. They were the centerpiece uh, of what I uh, had done uh, and looked at. And as a result, it was easy, too easy almost, to uh, look at the negative side of technology in schools, which means the disappointments, the failures, and mm -hmm. time and time again with film, radio, television, and, uh, and computers. But for this book on uh, the butterfly and bullet book, I wanted to flip it and, and take a look at uh, exemplary uh, teachers, people who, uh, teachers who had used technology and made it so much a part of their repertoire that technology was not in the foreground, but in the background. It was as natural to them as, uh, uh, as, uh, as drinking water. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I did was uh, get the names of exemplary teachers in the Bay Area uh, exemplary schools and districts that were using technology as uh, as the <clears throat> reformers wanted it to be used. So uh, I was looking at the best cases rather than recording disappointments and failures, which I had done in earlier uh, books. So that's the uh, that's the basis of it, and I had got the names of many teachers. And I ended up with 41 exemplary teachers in high school, middle school, and elementary. And I visited every one of their classrooms and interviewed them and tried to find out uh, how they were using it every day uh, in, the, in the way that I observed the classes. And then what I would do is draft a post for my blog describing their classroom, send it to each teacher to correct any errors that I made, and then publish it on my blog, which is what I did all the way through 2016 and 2017. So that's the background, Hoover, to the uh, this book. 
Yeah, that's a lot of legwork. And I'm interested in your choice of the Silicon Valley area. And you address this in your book. By going to schools within the Valley, were you interested or concerned about perhaps having a bias that's not representative of the rest of the nation, a bias towards technology and being so progressive and, and enjoying the benefits of having the big Google companies and, and others feeding this technology into the classrooms? Or was that exactly what you were looking for as a best case example, perhaps? Uh, you nailed it. That's exactly it. I wanted, uh, uh, if not in Silicon Valley, where, the, where in the world are you going to find teachers that uh, have been saturated with uh, new technologies and have had access to additional funds and who are part in, inexorably of the culture, the optimistic culture, the can-do uh, culture of uh, uh, that every problem has a technical solution. So if not in Silicon Valley, where else? So I wanted to look at Silicon Valley was the best case, as were the teachers that I observed. You do a nice job in the book of presenting really a day in the life of a lot of these 41 classrooms that you visited, where you introduce the teachers and the nature of the students and, and give a play-by-play, basically, of, of what you saw and how technology is integrated into those activities. For those who aren't really familiar with the use of technology in K-12 through education these days, can you characterize the nature of the technology we're talking about? I know you may not recall specific lesson plans, but are we talking about robot teachers yet or kids staring at computer screens all day? Or, or what, what types of technology did you observe? What I did observe was that virtually in, uh, in nearly all of the classrooms I observed, Hoover, every kid had a tablet or a laptop. Either it was uh, issued to the kid uh, at the beginning of the school year, or there was a cart of uh, laptops or, uh, and tablets in the room. So every kid had it. Now, it was, not, uh, it was not constantly used. The teachers that I observed easily moved back and forth in a lesson between uh, having the kids open the lids of their devices, uh, closing them, not even using them, kids using notebooks pen, uh, and pens, and a whole host of activities ranging from whole group lectures to small group activities, to independent work where the kids were working at their devices uh, and looking at screens. It was an, uh, an incredibly rich mix of activities, many of which used the devices, but uh, many of which did not. And they were thoroughly integrated into that lesson. I mean, it was masterful to see many of these teachers do that. Yeah, I found all those profiles very positive and inspirational in their own right and, and just interesting in their own right. Simple things like students being able to sign in electronically and that frees up the teacher's time that would normally be spent taking attendance. Little things like that and Correct. then much, much bigger benefits. And I know that as you were observing all these classes, you had bigger questions in mind. You weren't just thinking, oh, this is nice. It's well integrated. What were you really trying to determine as you sat through these 41 classes? What were your big questions? My, my the biggest question was of the teacher after I observed and wrote it up and had the teacher look at it was, had technology altered how they taught? 
uh, with all of the integration, uh, what I considered a seamless integration of these devices into each lesson, had uh, the use of technology over the years and how they displayed it, had it altered how they taught? That was the major question that I asked of all of the teachers uh, in the interview that I had with them and also in written responses they gave me to that question. So those are the big questions. And I know your findings were somewhat complex and, and nuanced. What were your conclusions after that research? Well, I'm glad that you said that because uh, it's, it's so easy to kind of reach a, a kind of generic conclusion uh, that's either black or white. And I right. did try to make a nuance. So I appreciate that you uh, picked that up, Hoover. Basically, two-thirds of the teacher thought that the, uh, the uses of technology had indeed altered how they taught. When I pressed them for what they meant and to give me examples of how it had altered their teaching, invariably they mentioned how uh, the uses of technology outside a class and inside a class made them more efficient. They, uh, they saved time in researching things. Uh, they could. Uh, they didn't have to run to the Xerox machine to duplicate hard copies of articles or uh, exercises or workbooks. That all of this was now available in software, and they were. They had become, in their own view, much more efficient. That was uh, the two thirds. One third said that, yeah, they became efficient, more efficient. But they didn't think that it had altered the format or content of the lessons they taught, that it became a very useful tool. And if they didn't have that tool, they would have spent more time teaching in a similar way that they had taught with before they had the technology. So I had that split of two-thirds, one-third of uh, how they answered that question. And then I had my own background and experience as a teacher and as an observer of teaching for, well, almost a half century. And so I had to factor my own experience into it. And basically what I saw was that the teachers were telling the truth when they said, the two-thirds, that is, that they were more efficient. I believe them. And uh, they were telling the truth. But I also believe the one-third who said that they didn't think that the, uh, the flow of the lesson, the content, and how they organize groups, and how they uh, arrange kids in classroom, that that hadn't really changed. They were teaching content that they thought was important. And so the format and content of the lesson was pretty much uh, had not really been altered by the use of technology. And when I factored my own experiences and research into it, I believe them also. And that's the way that I tried to write it up, that the teachers were telling the truth, the two-thirds and the one-third, but the truth was multifaceted, was not one single absolute truth about uses of technology and how it had changed their teaching. So it sounds like that runs counter, your findings run counter to the general narrative that we get out of 
media reports on the subject of technology in the classroom. For example, when it is announced that a school district has budgeted to pay for iPads for all the students or some company has donated computers for all the students in a given classroom, those are always hyped, to use a term you're very familiar with, and and celebrated. And the implication, if not the outright claim, is that this is going to make a big deal difference to the education of the students and perhaps their retention of knowledge and so forth. But it seems like you have found again and again that it's not that simple and it's not really the case. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, it is. And that's a, 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 that's a fair reading of uh, the book and uh, my previous work, which gets me back to the two themes that you had asked me about initially, Hoover, which is that people who seek to reform schools particularly aiming at the classroom, and that includes now all of those philanthropies and uh, technology advocates, that they underestimate the complexity of teaching in the classroom, and they underestimate the complexity of the school that is anchored in relationships. And no device and, uh, uh, and new technology can alter that kind of complexity. And that is, and that unfortunately has been the Achilles heel of all of these major efforts, well-funded to be sure, to try to alter teaching and schooling through technology. You offer some explanation in the book about why this is so complicated. You offer several explanations and you offer some thoughts on really the dual mission, maybe even a conflicting mission of schools to both change and be stable. Can you say more about the drive to change and the drive to be stable and what you're talking about there? Sure. A lot of reform efforts have uh, uh, been pursued beginning as, as far back as John Dewey with the idea that the school is a mechanism to improve society. Mm-hmm. And so the reform impulse, going back to John Dewey, has not lapsed at all. It is alive and well in Silicon Valley and across the country. It gets renewed with every generation of reformers that the school is an instrument of societal reform. But when you look at why compulsory education uh, became uh, real in the U.S., in the big, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, why states required parents to send their kids to school and then uh, tax their property, even if the parents didn't have kids in school, you get that the mission of public schools is to pass on the core values of an American democracy and American society. And that's a very conservative function. It's a transmission function that you want to socialize the youth, that children and youth, to uh, accept the values of the community and the larger uh, nation. So both the idea of using the school as an instrument of reform and also as a conservative tool has been at the heart of uh, schooling in this country for the past century and a half. So when you take that dual function, which is somewhat conflicting, and then add in the complexity of a given school district, the politics, the turnover in personnel, budgetary issues, 
and the individuality of all the teachers, it adds up to a very challenging environment for anyone who wants to truly transform the system by introducing any pieces of technology. That sounds pretty discouraging, actually, as I think about it. Yeah. Uh, uh, people often call me a wet blanket. I understand that. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, and historians, by their very nature, have pointed out that there's very little that's new under the sun. And one ought to learn from other previous, well-intentioned, very smart reformers of earlier generations. And that's what I, as a historian, try to inform uh, current policy, current efforts to try to improve schooling, because I believe that schooling can be improved, not in a fundamental, swift kind of uh, tsunami of reform, but incrementally, as long as the vision of that kind of improvement uh, has great respect for teachers and how they work in classrooms. So I'm, I believe, I am a tempered optimist, and I believe that schools mm-hmm. can be improved. But uh, I also have a deep respect for the complexity of teaching and uh, schooling, and uh, um, try to communicate that to people who uh, have, are very smart and well-intentioned and have lots of money, that they have to take a look at how this institution operates beginning at the classroom level in order to improve it in increments, bite-sized increments, rather than in one fell swoop. And there are a lot of positive takeaways from your study, I believe. I, I didn't get a wet blanket impression at all, beginning with the profiles of the teachers that we've already discussed. Those are just positive and inspiring on their own. Thank you. You offer some more general reasons for optimism. You dispel a couple of myths, specifically uh, the myth of the failing public school, as you call it, and the notion that schools aren't changing. Can you say more about those two myths oh, yeah. to offer us some hope? The whole purpose of reform historically has been to create a sense of crisis. And that's not only in schools, that's uh, the nature of a democracy, because mm-hmm. you uh, depend upon uh, the popular vote and getting political coalitions. So that the idea of a crisis, when it comes to schools, uh, it means that you have to show that schools are failing. The society is moving forward uh, very fast. Uh, uh, things have changed in the workplace, and you got and schools are left behind. So you got to uh, move schools ahead to uh, stay abreast of society. That has been a popular theme of reformers since the early 20th century in uh, American schooling. So uh, if you update it now to the present, the, uh, the sense of crisis is that American schools have failed. And uh, you only have to turn to the uh, Nation at Risk report of 1983 that uh, is a kind of clear marker a flashing red light that American schools have not kept up and mediocrity uh, will keep the U.S. economy from ever uh, being uh, uh, remaining as a global competitor. So education is harnessed to the uh, economy and it's based on the, uh, the myth that uh, American schools have failed. Well, that's not accurate. Yes, there are American uh, schools, mostly located in, uh, uh, in big cities that are very poor, are failing. Uh, they're, they're, uh, 
largely minority and poor populations, but that, uh, and they have to be improved, and there are clear efforts to try to do that, but that does not capture the uh, in, decentralized system of schooling in 50 states, 100,000 schools, 3 million teachers, 50 million kids, and all the diversity and lots of successes, however one would define them, in American schooling. So that's, that's been a myth uh, of the failure of schools. And the reason is the political reason is to create a sense of crisis. And so looking at these exemplary teachers and exemplary schools using the technology is my way of also taking another poke at those two myths. And this leads me to ask about the title and the metaphors in your title. Can you explain what you're getting at with your references to the flight of a butterfly or the path of a bullet when it comes to these topics of change and reform? Sure. Uh, That was a quote taken from a very fine colleague of mine uh, at the University of Chicago, Philip Jackson. And uh, I abridge the quote, he uses the butterfly and the bullet, but uh, he was talking about educational progress. I'm talking about reform, but I do give him credit in the book uh, at an epigraph. So um, the idea is the butterfly hops around, its path is erratic, but at the same time, its job is to look for nectar of some sort. And in the process, uh, it, it fertilizes lots of other Uh, plants and flowers and the beauty that we have in nature. And it's an erratic, but nonetheless, taking a step back, a very purposeful path. But uh, it's unpredictable in many ways. Which flower that uh, butterfly will alight on, you can't tell. You're not sure. You can guess and all that. And that strikes me as the nature of school reform over the past century and a half as opposed to the bullet, which once fired from the gun, uh, will hit a target. Even even if the aim is off, it'll hit something. And it's straight and fast. And that represents to me the technical and overambitious hype kind of reform that technophiles and uh, technology advocates have pursued for generations. So that's uh, that was in my mind. And I love metaphors. What can I say, Hoover? Yeah, I think they're perfect for what <laughs> you're describing in the book. What are the implications, if any, for policymakers or principals or teachers or district administrators, given your findings, not only in this book, but over your career of, of the, this complexity and this incremental, somewhat random and haphazard path towards progress? What does that mean for those who are trying to set school policy? Uh, well, it's, it's something that I've said as a, uh, I've been interested in, in policy and practice for my career. So it's what I've said repeatedly that schools can improve uh, if policymakers and people who give a lot of money to schools can appreciate that it's the act of teaching and that teachers are crucial to any improvement, that teachers, in effect, are policymakers when they shut their door and begin a lesson, that Mm -hmm. they will take whatever policy comes from the top and put their thumbprints on it. And that runs contrary 
to so much in uh, policymaking that is top down. So some way of looking at and appreciating the complexity of teaching has to be anchored in every in every mind of a policymaker when he or she says, well, how can we improve schooling? They have to begin with the teacher in the classroom. And the second thing is that change occurs in, edu- in schooling slowly, gradually, and incrementally, but it does change. And you have to have a vision of the direction you want to go. And you can make those changes if you have patience, as opposed to trying to do something in a flash or trying to do something in a, a fundamentally uh, trying to change everything at once. That is a recipe for failure. I know your book is mainly focused on K through 12 education, the butterfly book, but I'm curious about higher education and whether the observations from this book or from your other research apply in any way to higher ed. Do you have any general thoughts on the use of technology in higher education and those trends as so many schools rush towards online classes and so forth? Uh, I wrote a book about that. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it came out uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, (laughs) and it's called The Scholar and the Teacher. That's not the title, but it's close to that. And it looked at Stanford University, two departments in Stanford University, the the History Department and the School of Medicine. And I looked at, uh, at the archives in both and trace the history of teaching and scholarship in the university at Stanford, compared it to other universities in the country, and looked at the uses of technology as of the late 90s. And I found a lot of similarities between higher ed and K-12. What came most clear to me is that the incentives in the uh, in universities, particularly elite universities like Stanford, was that the incentives all were for uh, encouraging scholarship and not teaching, which is uh, no news. It's, uh, it's old news, in fact. And all of those incentives, like promotion, uh, getting tenure and promotion, rewarded research productivity mm-hmm. and teaching, while rhetorically all university administrators said teaching is very important, they said it solemnly and with great gravity. But at the same time, the incentives uh, were such that anyone that wanted to climb the career ladder at a university had to do research, had to publish, and the, uh, the incentives ran counter and uh, teaching took away their time to do the things that would pay off for them. So that, uh, that's my short take on higher ed. As a final question, I'm curious if you have any other projects or new books in the works. I know you claim to be retired, but I suspect that's not really the case. <laughs> any any next projects? I do. I do. Yeah, I do. I have a uh, a project that's before a publisher right now, and it it, it looks uh, it looks at a more conceptual issue that has been bugging me for many years, both as a teacher and as a administrator and as a researcher. And is that how do schools define failure and success? And where do those definitions, those concepts of success and failure come from in the larger society and what it means for schools? 
and uh, whether those definitions have changed over time. And that's, that's my next project. Well, that sounds fascinating, too. We'll keep an eye out for that. And I know you touched on that theme in this current book. Yes. The book is The Flight of a Butterfly or the Path of a Bullet Using Technology to Transform Teaching and Learning. I've been speaking with Dr. Larry Cuban. Larry, thank you so much for your time and for offering these great thoughts. And thank you, Hoover, for this opportunity. 